We do have clients that ask all the time if they can give blood for their pets because we do a lot of blood transfusions in animals, but of course we can't give human blood to a dog or cat blood to a person or it doesn't, doesn't really work that way. But people will ask about that. They'll ask about if they could donate their liver, their kidney, um, they, they would donate organs for their animals, some people. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. Before we get started with today's episode, just have a couple of announcements for you all. First of all, I just wanted to give a huge shout out and thanks to Emma Scano, Matt Bauer, and Tom Schwab, who are all brand new supporters of the podcast on Patreon. In case you guys did not know, there is actually a contest going on right now for supporters of the show on Patreon. If you are a supporter within the next few days, anytime before uh, Monday, March 13th, you will be entered in a contest to win either a really cool watch or a really cool pair of sunglasses from a former guest on the show, Truewood. So check out their website, see all the awesome uh, watches that they got and sunglasses they got. And you, if you are a supporter on Patreon and you happen to win, you actually get to choose which watch or which sunglasses you would win. So pretty cool prize. Um, In addition to that, we have another contest going on right now for iTunes reviews of the show, courtesy of the tarot reader that I had on the show, Charlie, who was an absolutely amazing tarot reader. So if you leave a review for the show before Monday, March 20th, you will be entered in a contest to get a free 30-minute tarot reading over Skype from Charlie. And I did one, and it is awesome, you guys. I highly, highly recommend it. All you got to do is leave a review for the show, and you will be entered into that contest. So on to today's episode. In it, I interview Dr. Sarah Boston, who is one of only 50 fellowship-trained veterinary surgical oncologists in the entire world. Not like one of 50 in your city, one of 50 in your state, one of 50 in your country. She's one of 50 in the entire world. And she is a total badass. She's so awesome and down to earth and funny and awesome. And we actually end up doing a two-part episode. So in this first episode, um, we talk all about veterinary surgical oncology. So we talk about like, what are the treatment options for dogs and cats that get cancer? What are complications that come up in surgery? Um, All kinds of different interesting stuff. If you guys like animals, if you have animals, you will love this episode, I think. In part two, we talk about Sarah's life personally and uh, she was actually diagnosed with cancer several years ago um, after finding a lump on her own neck. So she tells us about this whole entire process that she went through of finding a lump on her neck, being a uh, surgical oncologist herself, but for animals, kind of thinking that it was cancer and then having to go through the healthcare system where she kind of got told over and over again, no, we don't think it's cancer. No, we don't think it's cancer. And lo and behold, she does have cancer and she's trying to be her own advocate through this whole process. 
And as she was going through this really disheartening, crazy process, she decided to uh, start writing about it as a form of kind of catharsis. And through a really miraculous chance encounter, um, she ended up getting a book written out of the entire thing. She she wrote a book about it and got it published. And it, I read it's absolutely amazing, you guys. This book that she wrote um, it is called Lucky Dog: How Being a Veterinarian Saved My Life. Anyways, part two of Dr. Boston's interview will be all about that book. Um, but here, part one, today's episode is all about veterinary surgical oncology. So without further ado, here it is. Hey, Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So the first question I would like to ask, and I've always wondered this about like basically everyone that interacts with animals in any way for a living is how many pets do you own? Because I always feel like if you work on pets, you, like you must just have like 25 animals in your house or something. Yeah, I wish I could have 25 animals in my house, but I actually just have one cat and one dog. Uh, my dog's name is Rumble. And he's uh, a rescue dog from Florida. And my cat is Romeo. I feel like that. Well, wait, 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 wait. Your cat's name is Romeo? Romeo, yes. Oh, my God. That's the gr- that is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. That's so awesome. You should win an award for that. That's like the coolest name ever. Yeah, people always ask me if a child named him. And I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. No child could come up with that. Come on. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I, that's so impressive to me because I feel like like you know the same way that they tell people to not even like go to look at a puppy or something you know because then you'll end up taking it home the fact that you work on animals all day and you're managed to keep it at just one dog and one cat i feel like is so impressive because you must just see all these pets that you just want to take home so badly yeah i do although i think i also just know how how much time it takes to take care of a dog and i'm busy so i really i have thought about getting another dog keep him company so that they could keep each other company. But right now I'm just managing with, with just rumble and he, I try to take him with me as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. Good call. Um, so let's talk about vet oncology. Um, I would love to know what made you decide to specialize in oncology when you were going to become a veterinarian and you did not just, you know, become kind of like a general practitioner vet. Yeah, it was kind of an evolution in my my career. And I think because I've been exposed to veterinary medicine for so long. So I was one of those kids who always knew they wanted to be a vet since I was six. And, uh, I became exposed to general practice for a long time when I was going through that process of, of trying to be around animals and work with animals and get experience. Um, and so I think by the time I got into vet school, I I sort of had a good idea of what general practice was like. I actually did spend three years in general practice after I graduated. Um, And I had a little foray in my 20s where I thought I was going to be a wildlife vet. And um, I still love that. But when the reality of what I wanted to do clinically uh, became apparent to me, I just I wasn't sure that wildlife medicine was going to be something that I wanted to do. And I got really interested in doing surgery. And so um, to become a surgeon, you need to do what's called a residency. It's three years of training just in surgery for dogs and cats. And then during that process, some of the mentorship I had, I got really interested in cancer surgery. And so I was able to do what's called a fellowship, which is one year to specialize in cancer surgery. And I did that at Colorado State University. So it's basically the exact same as being a a human surgeon, more or less. It's very, very similar. Our residencies aren't quite as long and we're a little more generalized. So we're, you know, in the human world, there'd be orthopedic oncologists and then there'd be thoracic surgeons and general surgical oncologists that do endocrine and do work in the abdomen. 
um, veterinary surgical oncologists will work on pretty much all systems. Um, and I would say we do, we do fairly complicated surgeries, but I think the human surgeons, they still, you know, they're, they're more specialized than we are. And so they're, they have a increased level of complexity. Right. Right. I, it's funny. I, I almost, I almost think that it feel like you have an increased level of, compl- I mean, obviously I'm going to take your word for it, but I feel like you have a different, like a higher level of complexity because of the extra breadth of cases that you have to take. Like the more specialized that you can be, it, it kind of like the less complex it is for you. Like you, you have to handle so much more, I feel like than a human surgeon. I keep saying human surgeon, but you obviously yeah. know what I'm saying. No, that's how we talk in veterinary medicine. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it is fun. I, at the university of Florida, I do get the experience of going over to uh, participate in and listen in on the rounds that the oncology group um, has every every week. I can't get there every week, but I get there as much as I can, and I learn a lot from listening to those rounds. But I also bring cases, and so you know these are orthopedic surgeons, and so I'll bring a ca- a case where we do thoracic surgery, or we're taking an adrenal tumor, and we're cutting into the vena cava, and they're always really like, "Wow, I can't believe you do that." Yeah, so, I'm not even allowed to do that. That's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> or they, you know, in in their world, they'll bring in. Um, the reconstructive surgeons and the thoracic surgeons, and they're working all as this big, huge team. And in veterinary medicine, it's, you know, it's just the surgeon. So we're the, we're the reconstructive surgeon and the thoracic surgeon and the orthopedic surgeon. So, yeah. um, but it, you know, I mean, I think they both have pros and cons to either, either profession. Yeah, for sure. So you brought up the wildlife thing earlier about how that was kind of an early thing that you thought you would want to go into. Um, which makes me think that, that although you you were saying like uh, as a vet you're not quite as, as quote unquote like specialized as, as like a regular human surgeon that i guess the specialization would almost come in a different form in that you only deal with small animals right like and more specifically like i think just dogs and cats if i read everything correctly and if would there then also be like a vet oncologist specifically for wildlife and then like a large animals vet oncologist and would it like further stratify like that so oncology is really a discipline that focuses more on dogs and cats. Um, it's growing. You know, I think there's going to become a need for it more in the large animal medicine and large animal surgery. But right now, um, those cases are managed by either large animal surgeons. So those are surgeons that work on primarily horses, but also cattle um, or large animal internal medicine specialists. Um, they usually will manage the cancer caseload because it's just not as much of a caseload for them. Uh, oncology for wildlife um, that's a growing field, I would say, but there's not really specific oncologists. Those would be usually managed by the avian and exotics veterinarians. But, um, because we're in Florida and for better, or for worse, there's a lot of owned wildlife here. Um, as, <laughs> at, we will help out our colleagues. And so we kind of do work as a team. So, you know, I, I actually used to be able to handle some of the wildlife and the exotic animals, um, when I was working with it more, but now, I can't believe I did that. You know, I used to, as a vet student, just grab an eagle by the, by their feet. <laughs> I would just open their cage and grab them because I knew what I was doing. And I don't think I could do that now. I think I've lost that skill. So yeah. um, we work as a team, you know, as far as managing those cases. And it's not that frequent, but it's definitely more frequent now that I'm in Florida. Wow, that's cool. So then it's almost like a group of surgeons. It's like you're there kind of to consult on one of their patients. That's true. And at the big specialty hospitals, you will get a, a very much a team approach. Um, you know, so, you know, the cardiology team might come and help us if we have an older patient who has a heart condition and help us to manage that and internal medicine will consult with us. And then for me, when I'm doing surgeries, um, they are pretty big surgeries. And so I, I can't do them on my own. And so we usually have a board certified anesthesiologist there managing the 
the anesthesia part of the surgery. And then we have criticalists after surgery that help us manage those patients. Interesting. Interesting. So before we get into some of the more uh, treatment related stuff and how you help out your patients with cancer, I would love to talk a little bit more about the differences between yourself and uh, a human surgeon and in kind of how you guys are viewed. This is something that I didn't even really consider until I read your book, which we will get to later in the interview. Um, but it's so funny and interesting, kind of the different ways that people view, treat, and act, it sounds like, around you as a vet compared to how they would act around a regular surgeon. Can you tell everyone a little bit about that? Yeah, there's. I would say, you know, to put it in a nutshell, there's less barriers between us. And again, that can be a good and a bad thing. People are more comfortable with their veterinarians. I think as a general rule of thumb, um, people are very, in general, want to be close to their veterinarians and, and a lot of times consider us their their friends and, and develop a close relationship. And that's because they're we're helping them with a very important family member, but maybe a family member that not everyone understands that bond and that connection. Um, they, they have more access to us as well. So they, you know, they feel more comfortable trying to get a hold of us. So on weekends and after hours, which things that you would never even consider doing with a, a human surgeon. Right. Um, the negative, I mean, that can be very positive because we can develop very strong bonds with our clients and, and really feel like we're helping them and, and helping them helping to improve their lives. The, where that can turn negative, I think is, um, sometimes, you know, veterinarians are very prone to burnout because, we don't always turn off the phones. We don't always, you know, stop working maybe when we should and, and have some, some boundaries and some barriers I think can be a good thing and some professional boundaries. Um, and where that can also maybe be a bad thing is that people do feel more comfortable or more ready to, uh, be abusive is not the right term, but sometimes it, sometimes it is in extreme circumstances, but complain and, and also question. And I think people should question if they have if they do have legitimate questions, but it needs to be done in a respectful, professional way. Yeah. And sometimes if you don't have those barriers, it's easy to kind of let go of that. Yeah. That's so, it's so interesting and true. I, I, yeah, I wonder why that is. It, there does seem to be like the, just this extra, uh, level of like respect and, and people, uh, treat their own physicians like on, on such this high pedestal and yet when they're bringing their their pets in somewhere it's just like okay i'm just going to kind of shoot the shit with you and you know certainly not treated the way that they would treat their own doctors yeah and and the the, the demands that they make and again I, it can be very nice because you, you do because those barriers aren't there you can get to know some really really cool people as clients um but i but i do think for the health of the profession we we need to have some boundaries professionally yeah for sure so speaking of boundaries professionally i heard another interview that you did and you were mentioning some of the like interesting funny things that people will ask for and you were speaking of like how again like in the vet world things are just so different and people will just say like hey can i come in on the surgery and this and that again like something that you would absolutely never ask like if if you know your husband was getting like a quadruple bypass or something you're not just gonna be like oh hey can i just come in there like the answer is no like no you cannot come in here uh, talk a little bit about that, like the things that people ask for, uh, because they, I don't know, I guess feel more open to. And by the way, is, is the answer ever allowed to be yes for that in the vet world? Yeah, that was a great question. Um, people will ask to watch surgeries. They will ask to, uh, come and hold for x-rays. They get really upset about the thought of their animal being taken away from them and, and having x-rays taken and maybe having to be sedated because a lot of times we do have to sedate our patients just to keep them calm for x-rays. And so 
owners will say, well, I'm going to come back there. And we really can't do that because they can't be, we can't have people exposed to radiation. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that, you know, and also, you know, as far as watching the surgeries, I mean, the problem is if something went wrong, the, the team will not behave the same way if there's an owner in the room. So it's actually not good from a safety perspective to have an owner there watching um, and people will, people will behave differently. The team will interact differently. And so you really want to have your surgery team really focused um, and focused on the patient. So other things people have asked and, you know, people will always ask it because I deal with so much cancer. They'll always ask if it's their fault or if they did something or if oh, they caught Oh no, that's so sad. It's really sad. Yeah. And I mean, most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's environmental factors or genetic factors. And we don't know why that animal got cancer. Um, there are a few cancers in animals that are smoking related. Um, but I almost hate it when it is that. And you know, I know the owners smoke because they're just going to feel worse. You know, there's nothing really that you can do it. All you can do is, is think of the future, I guess, and not maybe not smoke around animals in the future. But right. um, that question I find really difficult. Um, we do have clients that ask all the time if they can give blood for their pets because we do a lot of blood transfusions in animals, but of course we can't give human blood to a dog or cat blood to a person or it doesn't, doesn't really work that way. But people will ask about that. They'll ask about if they could donate their liver, their kidney, um, they, they would donate organs for their animals. Some people. Wow. And obviously the answer is always no, but man, that's really <laughs> nice that people yeah. ask. The answer is always no, but yeah, it's it's uh it's kind of beautiful and heartbreaking when people feel that strongly that they would do that for their pet. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit more about the cancer piece and what you do there. So what are the options for treatment with animals with cancer? Is it very similar to humans having cancer? Is it very different to humans having cancer? There are a lot of similarities, and I think that surprises a lot of people. Um, you know, one of the kind of myths that's out there or a reason that people don't pursue treatment if they have a dog that has a mass that they're kind of watching grow is they'll say, well, it's cancer. There's nothing you can do. And maybe that was true 30 or 40 years ago, but there's so much we can do now. And so generally speaking, we have the same tools available to us as they do in the human system. So um, we have medical oncologists who will primarily be administering chemotherapy and developing those protocols to manage usually microscopic disease. They treat a lot of lymphoma. That's a fairly common cancer in animals. Um, We also have the ability to do radiation and our technology for radiation oncology has gotten better and better over the last 20 years. So we're able to deliver pretty precise doses of radiations and really decrease the side effects now, which is amazing. Uh, And and then my contribution or my part, um, as far as, you know, the team is I'm a surgical oncologist. So I do primarily surgeries to try to remove as much of the cancer as I can. Um, And sometimes we have to use all of those tools together. We have to remove the tumor, um, but we know that maybe there's microscopic disease left behind. And so we have to follow up and treat that area with radiation and possibly even chemotherapy if we're worried about the potential for that cancer to spread to other places in the body. Are you able to be more or less aggressive, would you say, um, with your surgery and then also even with the other options like chemotherapy, radiation um, with an animal than you would be with a human? Well, it's probably both. Um, You know, as far as the cancer surgeries, um, I I do just by nature of what I do, they're pretty aggressive surgeries and people have different opinions about that as far as ethically, how far they would go and... and, um, I'm fine with that. I think my role is to give owners options. And if they want to go for a really big surgery, then 
my next part of that role is going to be to manage that animal's pain as best as I can. And we're pretty good at that now, which is, which is great. It makes my job a lot easier. We can keep these animals really comfortable post-operatively. I think where it's easier for me as a relatively aggressive surgeon is that dogs don't really care what they look like um, after a surgery. And so, you know, even a big surgery that might change their appearance or even an amputation, something like that, they usually just, their spirit kind of keeps them going. And if I can make them comfortable and functional post-operatively, they really don't care. You know, they really will, will kind of get on with it and their hair grows back and they might have a kind of a funny scar. But for some reason, if a dog looks like that, it sort of becomes cute. Whereas if it's a person that's, that's very difficult uh, to kind of navigate that if you're that, that patient. So we definitely have that going for us on the chemotherapy side of things. We tend to be less aggressive actually than they are in, in the human world. Um, a lot more people that are, that are being treated with chemotherapy will be sick. Uh, they use higher doses. They use this, you know, they'll use multiple drugs at the same time. Uh, we just can't do that with our patients. We can't really explain to them, well, now you're sick and you're in the intensive care unit because you don't have any white blood cells. Um, and also the cost of that would be really prohibitive for people to have their animal hospitalized multiple times during the course of chemotherapy. Mm, right. Uh, and it, it really goes against what we're trying to do because we're trying to give our patients the, the best quality of life, you know, and also trying to get quantity, but we'll always, we'll always take quality over quantity. And so um, we want our patients to be feeling good. So if they have to have a big surgery, we want to get them healed from that, you know, and comfortable as quickly as possible out of the hospital, back home with their client, you know, with their owners. And if they're having chemotherapy, we really want to have that to have as little impact on their quality of life as possible. Yeah, that's such a good point. If you have an animal that's, let's say, like 10 years old, and their average life expectancy is like 13 or 14, and they get cancer, and it's like, do we put them through chemotherapy for the next like year, or, you know, like a, a undetermined amount of time when they're getting quite old anyways? Or do we, if we can't cure the cancer, do we maybe just kind of let them live with it and have a, you know, a, a decent quality of life for the next like six months or something like that? I, it's like a, a, a much uh, more difficult debate, I guess, than when somebody who is like 50 years old gets cancer and it's like, well, they would... There's a good chance they could be alive for the next 30 years if we were to cure this cancer. You know, not like, okay, they might be alive for like two more years if we were to cure it or something. Yeah, it's kind of the million dollar question. And there's really not a, there's no answer because there's so many factors that go into deciding that. And so I see my role as just helping people to understand their options and making sure that all of the options are going to provide good quality of life. And then really it's up to the family to decide. A lot of families don't want that. They want me just to decide for them, but that's just not how it works in veterinary medicine. (laughs) They have to. They have to be the advocate for that pet, and and ultimately they're the decision makers. Yeah. What is the treatment time for these various methods for pets, and like specifically surgically, like what you're doing um, post surgery? How after you've done like a big removal of something? Um, how, how long before, let's say, a dog is back to uh, a semi normal quality of life? So my patients are pretty amazing compared to people. <laughs> Um, they will be in the hospital, you know, even for a fairly big surgery. So a thoracotomy or an amputation or a big tumor removal, they're in the hospital for one or two nights after that. Um, usually within 24 hours, they'll be up and walking and usually eating within that time as well. And then they go home. Um, they're not going to be perfect when they go home, but they'll, they'll need a lot of rest and, and care at home. But usually by the time they come back for their sutures to come out in 10 to 14 days, they're, they're feeling pretty good. Um, and then they'll, they'll continue to improve over another one or two weeks to kind of get back to 
what their baseline is going to be. Yeah, that's so amazing. It's so amazing. I um, just this morning was actually at the vet. Um, I got a new puppy uh, about one month ago now. And, uh, and he was there for his 12 week old, uh, shots, just getting more shots. And this dog came in, uh, to the waiting room that was a boxer, I believe. And he had the whole, it, to, to a couple things that you've said already. One is like how, qu- how quick these animals turn around and how amazing they are. And two about that. They don't, they could care less about the way that they look, you know, this boxer came in and his entire side was shaved and he had what must have been just the most horrible cut along his side, like very big, big visible stitches along maybe I'd say like eight inches of his side. Um, I, I God only knows like what could have happened to this dog. And it like the stitches didn't even look that great. And there was still some kind of like scarring and, and bloody stuff around that. And then he had a drain coming out beneath it. So clearly it needed to be draining a lot and everything. And the dog did not stop wagging his tail for one moment from the like time he got inside. He like wanted to say hi to absolutely everyone. He was like walking up to everyone in the waiting room, just wagging his tail like crazy. And it's just so freaking inspirational. And, and God, dogs are just so great. Yeah, they are. I mean, I, I definitely am very lucky with, uh, you know, my, my patients are very forgiving and um, they, they really do. As long as you're giving them love and, and keeping them as comfortable as you can, um, we can get them through a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Do you by any chance know anything about the, I I know that you do studies and stuff like that, and especially being where you're at in Florida right now. um, Do you know anything about like rates of cancer in wild versus domesticated animals and then in like animals versus humans? That's such a good question. No one's ever asked me that. I don't think I have really hard statistics on that. There is you know, a lot of people think that cancer is on the rise and maybe it is, but it's actually really hard to measure that um, because there's so many other things happening at the same time. Um, Our ability to treat cancer and diagnose cancer has gotten better and better. So, you know, whereas maybe 25 years ago or 30 years ago, we wouldn't have been able to have the diagnostic tools to know that that animal had cancer. We would just know that they were old and sick. Now we can tell you exactly what kind of cancer it is and what the prognosis is and how to treat it. And we can do a CT scan. We can see where it is in the body. And then running parallel to that, people have really taken animals into their homes, into their beds. I don't know if your puppy's in bed with you yet, but I mean, (laughs) most people (laughs) sleep with their dogs. They're part of the family. And whereas you maybe would have said, you know, in the past, families would have said, well, you know, he's had a good run, but he's 11. I, you know, he's sick. We're going to, we're going to euthanize him, which is, which is completely reasonable if that's what a family decides to do. But now really, I mean, especially the clients I see, they want more than that. They want answers. They want to know exactly what's going on and they want to treat. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, man. I, um, I'm going to try to find this out. I'm going to, if I find it, I'm, I'll put a link up on my website to it, but I want to see if anyone's ever done a, like a, any sort of recent study on like w- cancer in wild animals versus domesticated animals. Then again, I guess who's going to be checking for cancer in wild animals? It's naturally just going to have a lower number to what you said. Ah, this is why studies are so hard. It's like you can never know like correlation versus causation in medical studies. I used to hate medical studies because it's like, is any of this real? Is any study real at all? Like, I don't know, you know? Well, veterinary medicine is, it's a uh, hard area to do research as well, just because of the numbers. So, you know, compared to the human studies where they'll have like a thousand patients, you know, if, if we as veterinarians have 30 or 40 dogs in a study in a, you know, a paper that we're writing, we feel really good about that. And we do the best with the data that we have. But, um, I do think to that point, it is really important for 
people who are looking for information about cancer and their animals to really try to stick to information that's peer reviewed and has been published in medical journals because there's so much out there that's not true and it's it's very hard I, I feel really bad for my clients who are who are trying to figure that out you know what's real and and what's what's a false claim um but really like trying to stick to things that have been published in in medical literature i think is a really good rule of thumb yeah for sure yeah we live in such an interesting time where there's just all this information at our fingertips and yet some of it and a lot of it is just totally bunk and like is not to be believed you know yeah alternative facts are happening in veterinary medicine too and and i, I just became aware of that you know with something else just this week but you know i realized how how hard that is for for my clients and and how much they want to believe that this claim is going to cure cancer in their dog because of, of course that's what they want you know it's what i want too but it's just most of the time if it seems too good to be true or if it's just if you can't find that information anywhere else it's probably not true yeah and that's got to be really difficult then as the physician as well because that almost puts you at odds with your patient you know it's like they they kind of feel like almost like you don't have their back or you don't want to try the thing that they found or like you just don't get it or whatever i i, I would imagine that that can't really help your relationship. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people will come in incredulous that I don't know about I, whatever it is. It's usually something that's holistic, you know, that I haven't heard of this. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of laughing, but you know, a lot of times I just want to say to people, you know, don't you think I'd know about it? Like if it really was the cure, but I think for people that are seeking that kind of thing, there are veterinarians who do holistic therapy, you know, that are trained veterinarians who work, you know, in, in that field that, you know, they can do nutritional supplementation and they'll usually know some of the science behind it. I may not, but, um, you know, I mean, that's sort of the source that you want to go to if you're going to, if you're interested in that for your pet. For sure. So what are some of the common complications that will come up in cancer treatment for dogs and cats? And is it similar to the complications that come up in people? For my caseload, which is a surgical caseload, usually if there's going to be complications, they usually happen around the time of surgery. So um, if you're removing a really big tumor and it's a relatively small patient, they can only lose so much blood. And so a lot of times we need to be really prepared for that. So we'll know what the patient's blood type is, and then we have a blood bank available. And depending on how worried I am or how worried anesthesia is, we may have that bag of blood in the fridge. <laughs> we may have it in the room with us, in the in the operating room with us, because we're pretty sure we're going to have to give a blood transfusion. So that's one big complication for a lot of my, my caseload. Where do you guys get the blood from? So we have, uh, where I work, um, we do have dogs in the community that come in and donate blood. That's so amazing. Uh, I've never seen like a, a doggy blood drive before, but of course you would need that. Yeah, so we have that. And then uh, for the kitties, um, we actually have a beautiful room where um, it's it's cats that needed homes that are housed with us and they donate blood. And the reason we do that is it's a little bit harder to get cats in the community to come in and donate blood. Um, it's a little bit more for them to go through. We, we often have to anesthetize them or heavily sedate them. And so um, whereas a big dog would usually, the you know, the, they don't need sedation and they'll sit there and donate blood just like a person would. We don't really want to put our community cats at risk. and so. We have cats that that live with us where they kind of do their time with us and then we find them homes. So they don't they don't stay for too long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they're kind of our in-house blood donors. Um, and they have a pretty cool setup where I work. They've got a little um, I call it the Florida room so they can go outside through the cat door and they sit in their Florida room. And then they have a really great room where they can have tunnels and places to hide and stuff. And they, they're a community of cats that live together. So that's pretty cool. That's like not a bad life. Uh, it's like 
you know, the deal between, all right, I'm going to donate blood, but I get just this awesome lifestyle with other cats. Yeah. I always want to go in there every day when I'm walking past them. I just want to go like sit down and pet the cats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's good stress relief just to watch them all hanging out. Yeah. That's cool. So let's talk about, um, when things don't quite work out and what that is like. Um, another thing, how I kind of started off this interview, uh, with the, I always wonder about like anyone who works with animals, how many animals they have. I always also wonder about anyone that works with animals and vets, like what it's like having to put down animals when things aren't going well. Like when you've tried treatment on an animal, it didn't quite work or like the cancer comes back or whatever it is. And now you have to put the animal down. Um, first of all, is there a specific person, uh, at, the facility that like that's their whole job or does that rotate around do you have to put the animal down if it was your animal and uh, i guess just describe that whole interaction and how that all goes so in general it's it's whoever was caring for that patient would be the veterinarian responsible for for doing the euthanasia Um, there's a few options that people have and so it may be the vet that they've been working with Um, If it's happening on kind of an emergency basis, they may do that through our emergency doctors or through an emergency clinic. Um, They may go back to their family vet because that vet has known that pet for their whole life. So um, some people might be more comfortable in that setting compared to at a referral hospital where they maybe haven't worked with us for quite as long. And there are some house call vets now who will go to the home um, and euthanize pets at home, which some people really prefer that to having to go into the hospital, especially dogs who get really stressed or scared when they have to go into the vet, the vet clinic. Hmm. Um, surprisingly, I actually don't do euthanasia as much as I used to when I was in general practice. Um, I think because the nature of surgeries, it's, you know, they, these patients come in, most of them do great. And most of them go home in a couple of days. And usually, you know, if they're succumbing to their cancer, it's, it's when they've gone back home. And a lot of my clients don't live in the same town as me. So a lot of them would would be having that euthanasia with their with their family veterinarian. Right, right. Yeah, how common are vet oncologists? Like it, it, you just mentioning about how a lot of the people don't really live close. Um, like how many are there, let's say, per state? In the, which obviously that changes so much in the U.S. depending on the population of the state. But like a pretty populated state like Florida or something. Like how many of you are are down there? And I know you're from Canada. Like how many vet oncologists are there in Canada? So for, so veterinary surgical oncologists, I'm a little bit more familiar with those numbers. Yes, um, sorry, that's what I, that's what I That's mean. okay. There's, there's three of us in the state of Florida and two of us are at, um, University of Florida that myself and my colleague. Wow. Um, so not that common. There's, you know, as far as veterinary surgeons who've done fellowship training, there's, I think about 50 of us worldwide. Damn, and that is crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we are crazy. So that's why there's not that many of us, I think. But, um, but there's also, you know, I should say there's a lot of specialist surgeons who've done a surgery residency, they're board certified surgeons, and a lot of their caseload is, is cancer. And so they have a special interest. So, I mean, those are, those are surgeons who are very well qualified to, to perform cancer surgeries as well. Wait, 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 wait. But so just to recap, there's only 50 of you in the whole world? There's around 50 that have done fellowship training. That is freaking crazy. You must feel like such a badass all the time. <laughs> I haven't called that. Yeah, my students, <laughs> my students I think I had a, a one of my student evaluations. They wrote, Dr. Boston is a badass, which <laughs> I think I need to frame that. because that's, that's kind of an awesome thing for a student to say about you. So cool. <laughs> 
Um, all right. So before we get into your personal story of cancer and your book and everything, uh, I would love if you could tell us about any, uh, so just like a really happy story before, not that this is going to be a really sad story, but any like really happy pet stories, uh, like what are like one or two of the more like inspirational pets that you ever dealt with? I'm honestly touched by pets every single week. Every time, you know, every, every, every time I take care of a pet, I just had a client uh, recently who has a lot of health problems herself and actually was a little bit difficult to get to know and to work with because I think she just has a lot going on and, and uh, not the easiest conversations that we had with her, but, um, we did surgery on her dog. Her dog had a, he's a service dog for her and, um, he had a lung tumor and also an adrenal tumor. And so we went into his abdomen and removed his adrenal tumor and then he was still doing well. So we rolled him over and went into his chest and removed his lung tumor. And, um, she was so stressed about this event. And I mean, I think this person just really needs her dog to be with her and, yeah. So I ran down, you know, it was a big surgery day for us. We usually do our surgeries all on the same day on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I ran down after the surgery because I knew she was, she was waiting in the waiting room with her husband. And I ran down and I said something to her, like, you know, I've got to go because my next case was going soon. I said, I just wanted to come down and let you know that everything's fine. But she, she misunderstood and she thought I was only halfway through what her dog needed done. She thought I was coming down after the adrenal tumor and was still going to go back and do his lung tumor. And so when she kind of connected that, we were done everything. I mean, she was up and like yelling and hugging me. And crying. <laughs> well, it was very dramatic, you know, and I realized even though this person had been a little bit challenging to work with, just how important this was to her and how relieved she was. And she sat there all morning. And then as soon as she knew her dog was fine and was, was leaving surgery, she, they went home, you know, and she, <laughs> she was fine. You know, she was, she was like, I'm fine now. And she went home. So, I mean, there's things like that that happen every day that um, you realize that, that, that animal for whatever reason i mean it's not just because they're dogs and we love them but they often have a very important role in the home for that for that client so I feel really privileged that i'm able to help people that way it's got to be so um such kind of a nice reminder psychologically to to witness things like that like we all know that we're kind of supposed to give people the benefit of the doubt if let's say they're not putting their best foot forward um and, you know, you try to tell yourself like, oh, maybe that person's just having a bad day or something like that. It's like you really, really get to see that every day in what you do. And like you're saying that that woman had been kind of difficult to interact with. But then as soon as she hears this good news about her pet, she like totally flips a switch. Um, I guess it's got. Yeah, it's got to be like a nice reminder that that like deep down in every person, there's like this really good person that wants to come out. But maybe there's just like something covering it up, you know? Yeah. And I don't see people on their best day. So I have to always remind myself of that. Too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so, I mean, again, and that's kind of where that, that whole difference between human and veterinary medicine, because I think in the human world, people, maybe I'm wrong, but people might be a little more careful about kind of keeping that contained. But in, but in veterinary medicine, they kind of let it all, they let it out. And, and again, it's good and bad, but sometimes, sometimes people maybe aren't having a very good day and, and are, either taking it out on the veterinarian or the, or the staff or, or our technicians. Um, so that's, that's something that happens not too uncommonly that people are pretty rough on the staff. And then when the, when the doctor comes in, they're, they're much better behaved. And I, that always hurts me a little bit too, because our staff are, they're not paid well, you know, they're there because they love animals. They're trying to help. And, um, you know, it hurts us when people don't treat them well. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, so let's talk a little bit about you and your story and uh, and the amazing book that you wrote. So you discovered a growth in your own neck a while back. Hey, everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed part one of the interview with Dr. Boston. Part two will be coming out on Monday, where, as I mentioned before, and as I'm sure you just heard, we'll be talking about her finding a lump in her neck and then uh, ultimately being diagnosed with cancer and what that entire process is like and what it is like to know that you have cancer and going through treatment and surviving cancer. And then uh, as Sarah is the amazing person she is, writing this amazing, amazing book about the entire process. So she will tell us about all of that on Monday's episode. Thanks so much for listening.